0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. and Dr. Jody Stanislaw, Uh, She's a naturopathic doctor. She focuses on type 1 diabetes. Uh, She's a type 1 diabetes specialist, certified diabetes educator. She's also done a TEDx talk called Sugar Is Not a Treat, which had over 2 million views. And she has uh, 35 plus years of experience in working with people with diabetes. So Jody, thanks for coming.
2: Thank you so much. I'm happy to
1: be here. Yeah. So I've interviewed a bunch of people that work with people with type 1 diabetes. What's What would you say is unique about your approach? Like, how have you chosen to focus on helping people?
2: Thank you for that question. I, and just for clarification, I actually haven't worked personally with other people with diabetes for 35 years. I have worked with people with type 1 for about 10 years, and I have 40 years of experience because... I have had diabetes myself for 40 years.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, okay. So maybe I wrote that when I was at the 35-year point, and now I'm at the 40-year point, but 10 years professionally. And so I walk in my patient's shoes every day, and I have since I was seven, which really puts me in a, a really unique situation, right, to to truly understand what they're going through. And very universally, I must say, because I have patients in over 10 different countries, and I hear this echoed from Every corner of the globe, type one are often feeling very alone, very under, misunderstood. They feel like they don't have a lot of direction. It's a very complex. Condition to manage on a daily basis, you know, 24 hours a day to manage your blood sugar levels. And type one is very different than type two. And type one is only about 5% of the diabetes population. 95% is type two. And the how to take care of a type one versus type two is frankly, very different type one, because it's an autoimmune condition and our insulin producing cells are pretty much attacked and killed. Mine have been gone since I was seven. I've been injecting insulin on a daily basis since I was seven. I can't, you know, lose weight or exercise more to get my cells to come back. They're in a type one, the autoimmune destruction, it kills your cells. And now you you cannot live without insulin. You have to inject it every day. Well, knowing how to inject insulin properly is the focus of my training because it's very complex. It changes every day. And the majority of type ones do not get the training that they need that's thorough enough to truly help them understand how do I stay in a healthy blood sugar range when it's totally up to me to stay there. People just think, oh, just avoid sugar and, you know, no. So what's, you know? what's
1: more of the nuance to it? You
2: know, Oh my gosh. Hormones. If you slept well or not, if you're stressed, if you've gained weight, if you've lost weight, how acti- active you've been, what time of day it is, is your cortisol peaking, is your growth hormone peaking? Did you have a meal with a lot of fat? Did you have a lot of, did you meal with a lot of protein? Did you have slow acting carbs? Did you have fast acting carbs? Are you sick? Did you get a steroid shot? Are you sedentary? Are you extra active? Every single day, you have to assess all of those variables because the amount of insulin you need changes depending on 10, 20, 30 variable. And most people are just taught, oh, I just give myself one unit for every 10 carbs I eat. And so if I eat 10 carbs, I give myself one unit. If I eat 20 carbs, I give myself two units. If I give myself 100 carbs, I give myself 10 units. And that's all they're taught. And that will not get you good blood sugar levels. That's not. And that's 99% of what most type ones are taught. That's it. It's not enough.
1: So okay, well, I mean, if there's all these factors, then how is someone that has type one supposed to navigate? What you know, (laughs) out of all those factors, hopefully there's a few that really are like the most important. So, what would you recommend for people?
2: Well, I recommend that people take my training courses and follow me. (laughs) Because I mean, I've had
1: what's some enticing info to get them to do that. Like again, what have you determined? You know, I know everything's important, but there are a few factors you've determined that really, you know, are like a quick heuristic, a quick and dirty thing that is a little bit better than what people have been trained to do you know, as patients, but what, what are like a few improvements they could make?
2: Well, so when I have, you know, when I work with patients, I, you know, I work with them either privately or I have group, I have a whole group membership program. I have training courses. There's three major pillars that they must understand. And ideally in this order, the first is truly understanding how to set their background insulin dose properly, which is called a basal rate. If they're on a pump, or long-acting insulin if they're on injections, because that sets the foundation for your good blood sugar levels. And most people who come to me, first of all, they don't know how to test if it's set correctly. And second of all, they don't know how to adjust it because many patients are told to not adjust things until they go to their doctor, which is just not a realistic way to have successful diabetes management because you have to learn how to adjust things every single day. And so the background insulin is what you need. First of all, you need insulin to live minus food. Like even if I did a seven day water fast once, And I still needed insulin every single day. So you have to have insulin, even if you're not eating, for your body to function. And so your liver is actually putting glucose into the bloodstream every day. And to counteract that and to allow your body to function, you need insulin. So your background dose, your basal rate if you're on a pump, your long-acting if you're on shots, needs to be set such that you can stay in a healthy blood sugar range for 24 hours in the absence of any food. So, I mean, and I don't necessarily have them fast for 24 hours, but ideally that's what the dose is supposed to do. It's not supposed to raise you or lower you. It's just supposed to keep you in a healthy range 24 hours a day. So that's the first step is I help them determine how to do that. And that can take a few weeks because there's a lot involved in testing that out. Why, Why
1: is that important if people are, for the most part, eating regularly and not fasting?
2: Because this is, can your body stay in a healthy blood sugar range when you're not even eating, like in between meals, and when you're sleeping, because when you're oh okay in between meals so, and sleeping, you need to that's you need good blood sugar levels.
1: But what? You know, so what? What in your estimation causes someone to be in control versus out of control, even when they're not eating?
2: Well, if you don't make any insulin, you need insulin. And right, if- I
1: know, but I, but I'm saying like um if you're establishing this basal rate, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you have two people, one has I don't know, I'm just making this up, five mm-hmm. units a day. Yep. It's enough for their basal rate. The other one needs 20. Yep. What does that tell you about the two people? And what would you advise them? And why do you think that's happening? Why would there be that different?
2: Oh, everybody has dramatically different inter, uh, insulin needs. It can depend on how old you are, how much you weigh, how tall you are, how active you are, how insulin sensitive you are, your genetics, your athleticism. There's tons of, there's no set number that works for everybody. That's why type one is so challenging to physicians because there's no set protocol that works for John and Jim and Mary and Sue. Like every single person's body works so differently that insulin doses will have to be different.
1: The, if the recommendation is, you know, if there's like one recommendation for everyone is oh, take one unit for every 10 grams of carbs. For some people that's way too low. And for some people that may be too high. Exactly. Okay. I got you. And, Do people operate sometimes for years chronically under or overdosing themselves? Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, that that makes more sense. Yeah. So you help them establish this basal rate. And then what they, if they're going to eat a meal, then they just add, then, then they go to that standard and add like, let's say one unit for every 10 grams of carbs above and beyond the basal rate. Or like once you know the basal rate, how do you work it?
2: Yeah, so the so there's three phases to my program. The first is understanding and setting the basal rate properly so that in between meals and while you're sleeping you stay in range. The second phase of my training is truly becoming a savvy mealtime doser to really understand how different foods affect your sugar. So dosing is is definitely an art because your insulin, you know, has this trajectory of slowly working, it takes maybe 15-30 minutes to start working, it peaks at like 30-60-90 minutes and then it has a tail. Where it just kind of peters off, right? So it's at its peak of its power, i.e., it's removing the most amount of glucose from the bloodstream when it peaks, which can be anywhere, you know, around sixty minutes, can longer. But every meal doesn't necessarily digest its glucose in that same manner. Um, I have a lot of people that follow low carb. You know, all they had for dinner was chicken and some veggies, right? So they don't need a whole big peak of insulin, and then that wears off. They need a tiny bit up front and maybe a tiny bit an hour later, because protein actually can turn into glucose, but it turns into glucose very slowly over about five hours. So I teach people all these nuances of like, well, how many carbs are you eating? But are you eating fast carbs? Are you having fruit? Are you having a banana? Or are you having black beans? Because a banana is 30 grams of carb that's fast. And then, you know, two thirds a cup of beans is... 45 grams of carb, but it's slow. So these are all the nuances of mealtime dosing that are incredibly challenging, but must be taught and aren't generally taught. Another nuance is if you have a high, high fat meal, high fat doesn't necessarily raise your blood sugar directly like protein surprisingly can. But what a high fat meal does is it creates a temporary insulin resistance in the body for anywhere from five to 10 hours. So how I kind of help people really experience this full, full on is I'll say, okay, at lunch today, I want you to have two avocados and that's it. Don't take any insulin. Don't eat anything else. Just eat a ton of fat and then watch what your blood sugar level does. Because I want people to not just hear my words. I want they to experience it because most type 1s have been drilled into their head that they only need their carbs.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What does that mean that it causes insulin resistance for a bunch of hours? What what happened?
2: So – Every time you eat the macronutrients, you know, right carb, protein and fat, the digestion process is the acid in the stomach makes it all liquid, then that liquid goes into your intestines and the enzymes break it down even more into the microscopic, you know, molecules that we can use as fuel. And so all this fat gets broken down into fatty acid and then once this digestion process is complete, all those micronutrients are now absorbed into the bloodstream, okay? So if you have a big high high fat meal, you now, for the next five to 10 hours, have an abundance of fatty acids floating around in your bloodstream. And when you have a high presence of fatty acids in the bloodstream, well, guess where insulin is trying to do its job? Insulin's trying to do its job in the bloodstream. And when there's a high presence of fatty acids in the bloodstream, the insulin just actually doesn't. Can't do its job as well. There's actually a whole. Oh, it's
1: like a, a competition amongst less, the cells for nutrients. You mean?
2: I mean, just as a layman's term, yeah, it just can't. It the insulin doesn't do its job as well. And there is um, there's a whole, there's a small kind of pocket of type ones who are vegan and eat nothing but fruit and carbs. And their whole point is, when you completely avoid fat, you become so much more insulin sensitive that they say if you avoid fat and just eat a bunch of carbs your insulin's going to work so much better. And, you know, for some people that works great and they love it. For the majority, I find, you know, it's too strict of a diet. But the point is made that when you have fat in your body, in your diet, it does affect the sensitivity of your insulin. Well, I'm,
1: your I'm really curious about this. I haven't heard anyone talk about this. So if someone has a couple of scenarios, if someone has a lot of fat with a meal, but they also have carbs and sugar, what would you expect? Versus someone has a lot of fat, and then a few hours later, let's say four or five hours, they're hungry. Now they eat a meal, you know, without fat but lots of carbs and sugar. Like, what would you expect the differences yeah. would be?
2: Well, so this is that's a perfect perfect scenario. So let's say somebody has thirty grams of fat or or thirty grams of carb with no fat versus thirty grams of carb with fat. You're going to have to dose completely differently to two meals because, like I said, the high fat meal has not only carbs turning into sugar but it has a five to 10 hour increase in insulin resistance. So the 30 grams of, of carb plus fat meal, you will need a higher level of insulin over the next five to 10 hours that if you ate a 30 gram carb only meal, you would not need.
1: So what would happen if, um, could, I, could someone use this as a tool? Does it blunt the effect of sugar? You know, is there, is there a case where if you have a lot of fat, and then you have sugar. Let's say I was just, I don't know, I'm craving ice cream. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of fat first, then I have the ice cream. Does that mean that the sugar would ju- I would just have a higher background blood sugar level, and would it be excreted, and I'd literally pee out the sugar, or would it be even more detrimental because now I have you know the fat there, and have, I'm going to have much higher insulin. I'm going to need much higher insulin, or or have it if I'm healthy, and therefore it's going to drive all that sugar and stuff I need into fat storage. Like what do you think would be the wow. consequence of you know, of eating anything in a high fat environment If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: Well, it definitely this is also part of my pillar number two of my training of like how to be a savvy doser. You can have a banana on an empty stomach versus a banana after an avocado and the banana sugar spike, will be delayed because the combination of what you're eating also affects your blood sugar and the timing of digestion, right? If you I mean your your body is only so powerful. It can't equally digest the banana as fast when it's also trying to digest an avocado. The banana spike will be much more intense if it's on an empty stomach versus if it's eaten with or after an avocado. So they're like when I tell people if you want a big bowl of rice with your chicken, Curry, start eating a bunch of the chicken curry first, because it also matters who's in first. If you eat the rice first, there's no competition for that rice turning into glucose because it got in first. If you eat a bunch of chicken first and then eat the rice, you'll at least blunt the spike of the rice a little bit. Same with the avocado banana scenario. So the, I don't know, you'll have to repeat your question, but this is a key part of of why carb counting alone doesn't work to balance the sugar because there's so many details. (laughs) Now I'm talking about combinations and who's in first and did you eat protein and did you eat fat? You know, none of us are generally taught all that generally. We're just taught count your carbs.
1: So if you, okay. So if you, uh, if you worried about your sugar going too high, you could eat fat first in a meal and that would blunt the effect of the, the inbound sugar and carbs.
2: Yeah, it, it, would, would just, I, I get, it would. Yeah, it would slow down the body's ability to turn those carbs into glucose if you already have a belly full of fat and protein.
1: What other effects do you uh, do you postulate it has? Do you think it would again create a higher background insulin environment in, let's say, a healthy person? Or, I guess, well, if, all right, well, I'll stick with type one. So, if I have type one and I just am craving some meal that I know would normally take a lot of insulin, uh-huh. one strategy could be I have fat first. Then I have that meal, and I should be able to maybe get away with less insulin. No, I have to use more no. insulin.
2: No, you'll the more the if, the more high fat, the more insulin you'll need. You'll blunt the spike, which can be an effective, you know, strategy. You'll blunt a spike, but you will you still need more insulin.
1: I guess if you want to really get crazy, you could take a little bit of insulin before the meal. Have that first do the meal and then take the rest of the insulin later, maybe wait longer.
2: Exactly. So this kind of critical thinking is what I teach my patients is like, look, we have to be smart with realizing not only is it challenging to know how much insulin you need, but the timing of the insulin. You know, maybe you don't need all the insulin up front. Maybe you need to split the dose half and half, because if you're going to slow your digestion down, and then you give a whole bunch of insulin all in one dose, you're going to have a massive low blood sugar in the middle of your digestion that you're going to have to treat with eating a bunch of sugar. And then hours later, you're going to go high because your insulin's over its peak, but yet your food is still digesting. So I see this all the time with people. They're like, "Oh my gosh, I, you know, my little girl went massively low at dinner time, and then she went high later." I'm like, "Well, yeah, because you gave your insulin all at once too early." So timing is a whole nother topic of what I teach that a lot of type ones have never been taught.
1: Well, what if we reverse it? If you have someone that, um, you know, they're just they're not doing well with cravings. So they have like a sugary thing. And then an hour later, or a half hour later, now they eat a meal. Mm -hmm. But now what does that do in terms of insulin dosing?
2: So insulin, I always say sugar sprints and insulin walks. So if you're going to have a big sugary thing, the only way to avoid a spike is if you dosed your insulin 30 to 60 minutes prior, because as soon as that sugar goes in your mouth, your blood sugar is going to spike especially if you haven't pre-dosed your insulin. So they're going to have to pre-dose for the spike. That's one event. And then they're going to have to dose separately for their meal. That's another event. Interesting. It's very complicated and people don't know that. People look at me like, oh, you just teach your patients how to eat healthy food. I'm like, oh, I wish it was that easy.
1: <laughs> well, what happened then if you had a high fat meal and then you had the rest of your meal and then right after, you know, after your meal, you like sucking on a lollipop or something so that your body's being told, more sugars coming, more sugars coming, more sugars coming. Do you think that would reduce the blunting effect? Do you think that would reduce the insulin resistance caused by the fat? Is there any point in doing something like
2: that? Oh God, no. The fat is there. It's there. It's going to cause resistance. You can't like erase it. It's, I just it,
1: didn't know if you could reduce it. That's all.
2: No, it's going to be in your bloodstream. It's going to be causing insulin resistance. And the more carb you put on top of that, the more insulin you'll need.
1: Okay, interesting. So what's uh how about you know diurnally or you know throughout the day, I don't know what they call it. What should a type one diabetics diet look like in the morning versus the evening? Is there any nuance there? Yeah,
2: great question. Well, so we have a hormone called cortisol that all of us do. It's on a 24 hour cycle and it peaks in the early morning hours. And you know, it's kind of just part of the body's brilliance and it's peaking in the morning. And when cortisol peaks, it's actually increasing the glucose output from the liver. And it's a way for the body to kind of prep you to wake up and prep you to break your fast and prep you to have a little extra fuel when you start your day. So naturally, everybody's glucose from the liver is increased in these early morning hours because of this 24-hour cycle of cortisol. Cortisol peaks in the morning. Well- Non-diabetics don't ever notice this. They have no idea that's going on, but we certainly do because I can have a perfectly flat blood sugar level all night long. And then starting at 5am, it starts going up and starts going up. And then when I wake up, it can go up a hundred points and that's just cortisol doing its thing. So when cortisol is peaking, um, it does create more insulin resistance. So I always encourage people getting a high blood sugar down at breakfast time is going to be a lot harder than getting a high blood sugar down at lunchtime. Um, eating a bunch of carbs at breakfast time is going to be a lot harder to manage than eating a bunch of carbs at lunchtime or dinner time. So morning is my most challenging time to keep my blood sugar level normal, because this cortisol effect is very unpredictable from day to day. Sometimes I start going up at 5 a.m., sometimes I don't. Sometimes I spike right when I wake up and open my eyes, and sometimes I don't. So morning is is a bit challenging for people because you have another factor. In addition to all the other ones I've told you about already, but you have this cortisol factor. And um, so I teach people various means for how to manage that. So, but morning what
1: time will be challenging. What happens if you're a night owl with type 1 diabetes um, and you're sleeping through this typical quarter? I don't know. Is it the same regardless of when you sleep? Is it triggered by sunlight, this cortisol uh, peak? It, or is it? Um, yeah,
2: it, it, it should peak in the few hours before you sit, regularly wake up the body will know like, you know, especially if like I travel to Europe or if I travel to change time zones, it takes a couple, two or three days for the body to be like, wait, she's on a different cycle now. So, but yeah, once your body's in a rhythm of waking up at a certain time, it will adjust and it will start peaking in the few hours leading up to when you actually wake up.
1: So if I'm like a super late night owl, I go to bed at two and get up at 10, my cortisol should adjust. And then instead of peaking at it- are starting to rise at five. It may start to rise at yeah. eight or something.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Okay, well, that's good. I just didn't know if it was any more problematic for people that, again, sleep late versus early. Or if, if you're a type one, you just got to get up early. There's no way to get around it <laughs> because you're putting yourself in trouble.
2: You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, hormones is... One of the most frustrating, you know, variables with blood sugar management, because kids that are going through puberty and all their growth hormone spurts, that's, that's, they can need a lot more insulin, um, women going through menopause, women on their just 28 day cycle. A lot of people have a lot of re- insulin resistance the two days before they start their cycle, everybody, I mean, hormones are, we already have enough variables when it comes to fat and protein and our activity level. And if we slept well, but now hormones is, but I've got some strategies for dealing with that, but it is, it's, it's a lot to, it's a full-time job. And, you know, the thing is about type one is, you know, you don't, we don't look like It's like people, you have no idea that inside our head, we're making thousands of decisions every day about, wait a minute, how much insulin do I need? And, oh, wait, we're going to go on a walk now. That means I need less insulin. Oh, wait, you guys want to go get ice cream right now? Like, oh, my sugar level is high. I can't do the ice cream right now. Can we do it in an hour? And I mean, it's it's a full-time job in our head. And it's very poorly understood by many people because like I have a girlfriend I've known since childhood. And like when I was 30 or something, she looked at me and she was like, well, Joe, it's just kind of like second nature for you now. Don't you just kind of, aren't you on automatic pilot? And I looked at her and I said, so you've raised two kids, right? So being a parent, it's just like easy for you now. It's just like automatic pilot. You know, it's like, no, every, it's like, I call diabetes, my kid that I'm raising because some days it, your blood sugar totally behaves, and some days it doesn't. Some days you're like, Wait, what? Why am I so high today? What's going on? Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot to manage every day. There's a ton of burnout, especially when patients don't receive training and, you know, they're working, they're working so hard. And they're like, I, I gave myself three units because I was eating 30 carbs, and it still didn't work. Well, yeah, because nobody taught them that you have to affect, you have to change your dose based on protein and fat. I mean, burnout is such a big thing. So many patients are like, you know what? I've tried everything my doctor Mm -hmm. told me to do and it's not working. And my response is like, yeah, but that's because you haven't received the full toolbox of tools that you need because it's complex. And most type ones do not receive the full training that they need.
1: What are some, um, how about when you're going to go to bed, what do you have to make sure that you do as a type one before you go to sleep in terms of planning your last meal and sleeping through the night well?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. But before I answer that, let me back up because you asked me, what do I recommend people eat? And my recommendation for food is for everybody, frankly, this isn't just a type one, but eat whole food, you know, eat more food that nature grew and not was created in a plant, right? Fruits and vegetables and proteins that are, you know, well-raised and nuts and not, you know, chips and crackers and cereals and pastas and breads and you know none, none of those grow in nature right so eat more nature based food and number 2 your job will be a lot easier if you choose lower carb you know don't have a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast have you know maybe some scrambled eggs and a piece of whole grain toast or you know don't have pasta and bread for dinner have you know a piece of salmon with asparagus or broccoli you know like eat more whole food and the more low carb you eat so especially at dinner because you know, we type ones, our full-time job is how much insulin do I need? So I don't go high, but how much insulin do I need? So I don't go low because both of those are damaging low can kill you. You can literally run out of fuel because your insulin's job is to take glucose out of the bloodstream. And if you give yourself too much insulin, now you have too much glucose taken out of your blood and you have low blood sugar, you're running out of fuel. The brain needs glucose every single second to be alive or else you start having brain damage and you can have a seizure and you can die. And I have known type ones that died because they had a low blood sugar. If you go too high, nothing's going to happen to you right now. If my blood sugar level is 300 or 400, it's very high. I'm not going to die right now. But if I'm two, 300 today and tomorrow and the next day and the next year, and then the next year after that, i dramatically increase my chances of going blind, having a heart attack, having a stroke, Alzheimer's, having my toes cut off, gangrene, nerve damage, neuropathy, kidney failure. High blood sugar is very damaging to the body. So it's a fine line. You don't want to be too high when you sleep because you don't want to be 300 all night long, but you also don't want to die in your sleep and go low, right? So my preference is that people do eat earlier, smaller dinners. Because if you're going to have a big old meal that's going to be digesting for hours, you don't know how much insulin do you need so you don't go high and how much insulin do you need so you don't go low. I mean, I really try to help people to be like, okay, can you eat earlier? Can you, you know, eat at seven instead of nine? Can you cut back on the carbs? Because frankly, lower carb is safer in the sense that lower carb needs less insulin and insulin is what can kill you right? You can die from a low. And if you have pasta and bread and ice cream at dinner, you need such a massive dose of insulin that if you overdose it, you could kill yourself. If you have chicken and some veggies, like, okay, so you might be off a unit or two, but if you have pasta and bread and ice cream, you need like 10, 15 units versus two or three, right? So you're playing with less fire when you take smaller doses. It's called the law of small numbers. You know, smaller inputs create smaller margins of error. So when you eat low, because it's not dosing your meal is you never you never can be confident and say, I know I need three units for this meal. You can't, You can't. even if you had the meal a hundred times, because what if your hormones are different today? Or what if your stress level is different today? Or what if you slept differently last night? You can have the same meal yesterday as you had today, and you might not exactly always need three units. So there's a level.
1: So what do you do is you do like a little bit of a, you do your best guess and then what? You wait until like a half hour after you eat and check your sugar and then redose? Or what do you do?
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a 24 hour, a day job of checking and, and correcting. I one of my taglines is expect to correct. And you know, if you're going high after dinner, you know, go for a little walk. See if just the walk can can kick your insulin into working a little bit harder and bring you down. Or you might need a little bit more insulin. you might need another half unit. If you start going low, then you might need a little sugar. But that's why for me, it's I personally love just eating a small early dinner. So when my number is nice and flat when I go to bed, I'm not worried about it massively going up or down you know it's a big stress to have some big old meal digesting and a whole bunch of insulin in your body and then you go to bed crossing your fingers wondering if you're going to go too high or too low or or hit home run <laughs> you know i don't <laughs> I mean i always tell people hey if you want to have a big treat and a big carb meal have it at lunchtime so then you have all afternoon to kind of watch it and adjust it and see what it's going to do but you know these big huge meals with dessert at dinner are really not good for us at all it's so strange.
1: when people have a very high sugar does it tend to cause a bottoming out after that, or will it just return to a baseline however it returns? You know, again, do highs cause lows? Do lows cause highs?
2: Food causes highs, very simplistic, to more complicated way that, and insulin causes lows. So, I mean, I could eat a fudge brownie Sunday, and if I don't dose right, I could go massively high if I underdose, or if I dose too much, I could go massively low. Now. No,
1: but I mean, it, you know, you, we're adding insulin to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Normally the body does it on its own, but right. if we're in a very high sugar state and we add insulin, I don't know. Would there be an overcorrection because of all the other interactions of insulin in our body? It's not like, you know, I would think that the body would, again, have set points it wants to keep the sugar at. So just the presence of very high or very low may activate additional pathways that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, affect the insulin uptake and usage, and cause you to to crash or cause you to go way high.
2: There now in your body, you know, there's there's five or six hormones that can raise blood sugar: epinephrine, norepinephrine hormone, cortisol. And there's only one hormone that lowers, and that's in, and that's true for everybody. So in my body, I have all these different hormones that can raise my blood, sugar, but I have no hormone, none. I've, I've okay, so here,
1: so here's a scenario then. So if I go way low. And I said, Oh, you I as have, a
2: non-diabetic or you as a type one?
1: Me as a type one. If I go way low, I'm going to say, Oh, and I get to hurry up and eat some sugar. Yep. I have that. But in the meantime, all the other hormones in my body are probably saying, Oh, we need to kick in to try to get us off this low sugar yeah. level. So mm-hmm. maybe then I'm more likely to overshoot when that happens to me because the body is kicking in with other things. In addition to insulin or has no insulin, it kicks in with, but other hormones and trying to right itself. That's what I mean.
2: So in your, in your body, if you were to not eat for a while and your body will be like, okay, his blood sugar is going too low. I'm going to secrete some glucagon and I'm going to raise his blood sugar. And the body has evolved for millions of years to know how to raise your blood sugar because, but the intensity of a low caused by over injecting insulin, the body can't, the body is not skilled enough. It's not strong enough to be like, oh my gosh, like that's massive amount of insulin and that's a massive low. And now I'm in a massive bring their level up the body. I mean, that's why people die of low blood sugar because the, the body is not, is not trained to overcome that intense of a low. Now, if I have a patient who has been dragging along a low for 20 minutes and they're been super low and they finally come up, there is what's called a rebound high. The liver will eventually try to help us out. And the liver eventually tries to raise our sugar level, but it's not fast enough in the moment when you're having a massive, you can't just sit there and be low and trust that your liver is going to raise you up. Um, But yeah, there is a phenomenon where the deeper down they go and the longer they stay there, the more likely in the next few hours, their liver is going to make them fly high.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Right. Yeah. Is there an overcompensation when you go too low or too high? But it sounds like too low for sure.
2: Yeah. But if you're, I mean, if you're completely out of control and you're having massive lows and you're staying low for a long time, you're, you'll definitely have your liver kick in. If I go low for, you know, five minutes and I just barely kind of scrape along the low end of normal, and I'm not like massively with the momentum down, I don't have rebound lows when you're in well control and you have like a slight low, it won't cause a rebound high the more intense, the low, the longer, the low, the more, the downward momentum of the blood sugar is, the more likely you'll see a rebound time. And then of course, like I said, because we don't have any hormones that lower the blood sugar, the only way for our bodies to quote lower blood sugar without insulin is um, overworking the kidneys and peeing it out. Um, Any blood sugar above 180 kidney will spill sugar out. And that's like, upon diagnosis, the classic symptoms are massive thirst and, you know, and urinating all the time because the body's literally, you know, just sucking out all the fluid it can to flush out all the sugar that's in the blood. So it's making you massively thirsty and that you're peeing all the time because the, the kidneys are overworking to clean out the blood and pee out the sugar. But obviously that's so, so not healthy.
1: <laughs> are there any, are there any temporary effects like that? that type ones have So if if i'm a type one and you know i ate something wrong and i go way high will i feel the urge to pee a lot all of a sudden will i get thirsty like yes experience these effects
2: yep every time a type one goes high you get dehydrated and you pee
1: okay so it's i mean that's good in the sense that you can say "Uh uh-oh i better test or if you forgot to test or whatever it is or okay i'm getting another signal from my body that i better watch out something's wrong here
2: yeah exactly dry mouth the second i have a dry mouth i'm like oh i must be going up let me check I can, I can, I'm very fine tuned, but luckily you said the word test and it made me just want to let your listeners know. Hopefully most people know this there's continuous glucose monitors now. Mm -hmm. So instead of poking my finger and testing 15 times a day, like I did for 30 plus years, you know, I just have a little, a little filament that I insert and put under my skin, change it every 10 days. It Bluetooth talks to a little, you know, app on my phone and I can see what my blood sugar level is 24 hours a day by just looking at my phone, which is like, the greatest invention of type one in the whole 40 years I've had it. Yeah,
1: I, I've worn uh, the Dexcom G6 and also the yeah. freestyle Libre, the lifestyle Libre. I never remember the name, but yeah, those I know are two,
2: exactly. two commonly used ones. Yeah. So it's super nice, you know, because I used to have to, if I did have a big dinner, I would set my alarm. I'd wake up, you know, in two hours to just make sure I could test and see what my number was doing. Now, you know, if I do have concern with my blood sugar, level, I luckily can, I'm woken up by my alarms, so you know my CGM is set for wake me up at this high point and wake me up at this low point. And so I just go to bed with the thing next to my, kind of wrapped in my hand, and if I go high or low, it wakes me up. And so it's awesome. Same with like when I'm exercising, I'm biking, I'm skiing. It's in my pocket. If it's not vibrating, I know I'm in range, and that's awesome.
1: When you work with uh, with patients, clients, what's I don't know, like what what are some common stories? Where are they coming from mentally and in dealing with their they're type one like what are some common things you run into
2: sure great question i have three three kind of subtypes that i work one is people that have had it for decades and they're like i'm just burnt out man i need somebody that understands me i need somebody to help me i'm going high and low all the time my doctors aren't helping me i don't trust my doctors i ask them questions i don't get answers can you help so they're just burnt out um, I, and I've, I've helped so many people like that. I have a woman who's 65 in Pennsylvania. She's had diabetes for 50 years. She said, after working with me for three months, she learned more about how to get better control than she had in 50 years. And, um, I have several people that have had it for 30, 40, 50 years that have said the same thing. So they're burnout and they're just so thrilled to get the full toolbox of that they've frankly never received. The second category, which is really growing is adults that are newly diagnosed and that this just came out of the blue and they're like what what is going on with my body why do i have diabetes and because it's an autoimmune disease all autoimmune diseases today are on the rise you know there's just a lot more stuff going on in the environment that's triggering and affecting our immune system and that's you know it used to be called juvenile diabetes well they don't call that that anymore because Over 50% of people that have autoimmune diabetes are now over the age of 30. So I have a lot of women that are 40, 50, 60, and they were diagnosed, you know, just three years ago or something like that. And, and like I said, in the mass population, this level of education that I give is not what's available. And so they luckily found me, they liked what they heard. And now they're following me because they're getting the level of training that is helping them. And they're like, Oh my gosh, I love this. Now I know to exercise. Now I can exercise and not go low. Now I can have a flat blood sugar level as I sleep. You know, Now I'm not pulling my hair out every time I'm high wondering why. So the newly diagnosed adults is is my second category. And then the third category, of course, is parents of newly diagnosed kids. You know, they're just freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, my kid, what do I do? How do I do this? You know, I got to bring him to school and they go to practice and they're going to bed. I mean, parents aren't sleeping. They're looking at their kid's blood sugar every hour as they sleep because they don't have any confidence in having the blood sugar stay flat through the night. And then they go to their, their friend's house and then they're going to eat, you know, cupcakes. And they're just, the parents are just freaking out. It's It's really wonderful. Then yeah. they find me and I can help them. Yeah.
1: What about for type twos? Do you work with them or do you no, have enough no. with the type ones?
2: Yeah. I've just worked with type ones. Yeah. Cause my, my specialty really is really helping people feel masterful and knowing how to dose their insulin properly to get good blood sugar levels. And the majority of type twos are not on insulin, you know?
1: So really, I thought that a lot of them are insulin dependent later on as they've been, they've had it for a while.
2: Well, if they get to that stage, but that's not inevitable if they take better care of
1: themselves. Yeah. So what, what have you, I'm sure the stuff you have learned would be helpful for type twos. I mean, are there any lessons that you've learned that translate over to type twos that may be listening?
2: Yes. It's uh, well, with type twos, you know, they have a lot of control that type ones don't have in the sense that diet and lifestyle changes make a huge, huge impact on their blood sugar and diet and lifestyle can often be enough to quote, you know, cure them. Um, type ones don't have that luxury. So any type two, I'm like, Hey, eat better, lose weight and exercise, man, go to town, do that as much as you can. And hopefully you'll never need
1: insulin. Okay. I just didn't know if there's any advanced, like, you know, secrets to the pancreas that, you know, for that would apply to type twos as well. In addition.
2: Well, the secret of the pancreas is that nothing's attacking their cells. Their cells are just getting overworked. So take the stress off your insulin producing cells, i.e. eat less carb, eat a healthier diet, exercise more, lose weight. And your little cells will come back and you, you know, like take really good care of your insulin producing cells by those three things, diet, exercise, and weight loss, and your cells can come back. You know, they, it's, uh, yeah. So I'm just like, I mean, I don't know why type twos would want to work with me. I'd just be like, okay.
1: You said there's more type ones now though, that are getting diagnosed in their thirties and forties. Why do you think it's taking so long for that to happen to them? Any insights there?
2: Um, well, every there's all autoimmune diseases today are on the rise. MS is on the rise. Rheumatoid arthritis is on the rise. Like I said, there's a lot of um, just irritants in our environment that are creating a higher percentage of people getting autoimmune diseases. So, you know, there's, it's a very, nobody can say, oh, Jody, you got diabetes because of this. You know, there's a lot of theories around why somebody gets an autoimmune disease, but there's no... You can't put your finger on it. You can't put your finger on it with MS, with RA, with lupus. There's a genetic predisposition in most patients, not in all. There's a lot of theories about environmental triggers, but they don't always, you know, it's probably a cocktail of causes. I wasn't breastfed. I lived in Seattle. I had a low vitamin D. My parents got divorced. Maybe there was some emotional trauma there. Did I have a viral infection before diagnosis? These are all the theories that are
1: Okay. I gotcha. Well, very good. What's the best way for, uh, you know, type ones, not you type twos, unfortunately, but type ones, uh, if they need help, can you help them wherever they live? Do you do telemedicine? Um, Yes. You know, how can they find out more about you and your work in clinic?
2: Absolutely. Yes, I work with patients all over the world. I just launched a membership site. So, thousands and um, all those different options working with me privately, looking at my online courses, looking at my membership program are available on my website. People often spell my website wrong. So, you can just Google Dr. Jody Diabetes. And once you Google Dr. Jody Diabetes, I will come up. But my website is Dr. Jody N, as in naturopathic, D, as in doctor. D R J O D Y N D dot com. And um, my membership info is there. My courses are there. And working
1: with me is there. Very good. Well, Jody, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a great call. I appreciate it.
2: You bet, Richard. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
1: If you like this podcast, please click the link in
0: the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius podcast with Richard Jacobs.